Christian Standard Bible. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he went married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Loruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. After Gomer had weaned Loruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God, and the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. Call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion, the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Steneric Armitage. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Fellowship Church, and I'm so thankful that you all are here on this first Sunday of Lent as we begin a series in the book of Hosea. Hosea is a challenging little book, as are many of the prophets. And this morning, as we are looking at Lent, Lent is a season of repentance, of reflection, of renewal. And Hosea is a book that will definitely lead us in that direction. So again, I'm thankful that you're here. And this next six weeks, our focus on Hosea. And as you just heard read, uh, it's a strange book with a strange beginning. But first, I want to tell you about a story that I read recently about a young man. He was in South Florida, and he wanted to go swimming in the river behind his house. And if you're familiar with South Florida and water, swimming isn't always the best idea. So he goes out, and he's in the river, and he starts swimming, and his mother looks out from the house and sees the alligator coming towards her son. And she starts yelling and screaming from the house and running to him as fast as he can. And he, a good son, hears his mother calling and does a U-turn and starts coming back to the shore. And he arrives at the shore at just the same moment that the alligator arrived to him. 
And so the mother has a hold of his arms. The alligator has a hold of his legs. And this tug of war begins. And the alligator was strong, but the mother was passionate. And thankfully, a farmer was driving by and saw this drama going on and got out of his car and shot the alligator. So the boy was able to be rescued and taken to the hospital where he was in the hospital with reconstructive surgery for several weeks. And it was quite a story. Uh, the news reporters came after he was recovered to get his story and to interview him. And, and the reporter said, can you show me your scars? And the young boy rolled up his pant legs and showed him the scars from all the alligator bites. And he says, but then I have these too. And he rolled up his shirt sleeves and showed where his mother's fingernails had dug so deeply into his arms. And he said, these are for my mom because she was not going to let me go. It's a beautiful story that ends well, but I think it's that I hear that story that you and I, we have scars too. We have the scars of sin and, and pain from our past. Some of those scars are, are ugly. Some of those scars are, are raw, and they still are painful. And these scars may come from a season when you were running away or, or you were being pulled away from God. But God did not, and God will not let go. This is the book of Hosea. He is a God who will not let us go. And as we're looking at Hosea chapter 1 this morning, a question that I want to have rolling around in our heads is what can we do when we feel sin or the strain of society pulling us away from God? What does this text have for us? And we're going to go through three different moves. In, in good DTS preacher fashion, they're alliterative, so we can follow along. We're going to see a picture that is given to us in the text. Then we're going to see a punishment. And then finally, a promise. But first, I want to ground us in Hosea. What is this little book? When was it written? Why was it written? What's the story? And we have to start with the revelation of God. This Hosea is a prophet of God, speaking the words of God, and in a very real sense, as we're going to see, not just speaking the words of God, living the words of God as his own life becomes a lesson, an object lesson for the people of Israel. Uh, God speaks in various ways, but when he revealed himself, he told us what his name is. And we have this, this beautiful passage in the Hebrew. If you all could just follow along, let's read it together. <laughs> I just, I, the only reason I'm putting the Hebrew up there is this, is this is God's name. And it is beautiful. And I just wanted us to appreciate these letters that we are not familiar with that give us God's name. And it starts with his name twice. Yahweh. Yahweh. This is what we think of when we think the name of God given at the burning bush in Exodus 3.15, right? Yahweh. But that's just a part of his name. The fullness of his name is he is the God who is compassionate and gracious. He is the God who is slow to anger. And he is full, and I love this Hebrew phrase, these last two words, chesed and vehement. He is full of loving kindness and truth. This is his name. His name is Yahweh, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, 
and full of loving kindness and truth. This is his name. And so when we're looking at the prophets, we need to remind ourselves of who this God is because he is always true to his character. He never acts outside the confines of his character. And that's seen so beautifully and so clearly in this book of Hosea. So when was it written? It was written in the 8th century B.C., and it was written to the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember, there was the divide of the two kingdoms. The southern kingdom, with its capital being Jerusalem, all right, and then the northern kingdom uh, made up of the other ten tribes, and their capital was Samaria. So this is the context. It's a divided kingdom. And it's a time when things are going well. The Assyrian threat is starting to mount from the outside. So they're very aware of the Assyrians, that they might have some military trouble in their future. But their military now, right now, in the northern kingdom, is as strong as it's ever been. They're as prosperous as they've ever been. They would go so far as to say, we have not been this prosperous since the days of Solomon. The good times are rolling in the kingdom of Israel. Hosea's name, uh, his name is similar to Isaiah. You can hear it, right? Isaiah, Hosea. His name literally means salvation of Yahweh. And that his name is, is true to his message. And I have there that the key verses of Hosea are found in chapter 11, verses 7 through 8. Let's listen to these verses. My people are bent on turning from me, Though they call to him on high, they will not exalt him at all. These are the words of God. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. This is a God who will not give up on his people, who will maintain his hold even when the people are releasing theirs. So what's the... I'm giving as an, as an introduction of the entire book. What's the structure of the book? I'm, I'm calling it a parable, but it's not a parable in the sense that a parable is simply a story that is useful for teaching. It is a true story. It is a lived-out object lesson that is given to the people of Israel. So we have rejection of the people of God. We have a promise of restoration We have a rebuke, we have renewal, we have reconciliation, and then we have the preaching of Hosea, the actual message of the prophet from his position of of pain to the people of Israel. And he's speaking from a pulpit, a very different pulpit than the pulpit that I'm speaking from this morning. What Hosea is in the prophetic genre, it's called a, a reeve oracle, which means it's a lawsuit. It is a case that is being brought by God against his people. He is bringing legal charges against them because they have been unfaithful. So Hosea, when he is preaching his message, when he is giving his prophetic word, he is most likely standing at the town gate. This is the place where people would gather. And he brings God's legal complaint against the nation. The nation is brought to court. God sits as judge. And Hosea is serving as the prosecuting attorney. That's the picture that we have. But the prosecuting attorney is also God. So talk about a court that's stacked. 
The prosecuting attorney and the judge are the same person. And I'd like to bring up, there is no defense attorney. Because of God's great grace, there may be an offer of pardon, but that offer will be on God's terms. That's the book of Hosea. Now this morning, we're zooming in on chapter 1, what we just heard Mick read for us. And you can tell from what he read, we are given a very interesting picture. And that picture is this picture of marriage. Hosea, whose name means salvation, Hosea, who is a man of God, who is a prophet of God, is commanded by God to do something shocking, to do something so surprising that when we read it, we should just stop and say, what? When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. He's essentially telling Hosea, I want you to find an impure, unfaithful, adulterous woman. And this is, this is family Sunday, so I'm guarding my speech as much as I can. But a, a woman who partakes in the oldest profession, find this woman and take her to be your covenant partner in life. So, not too long ago, you as a church were going through the search process to find a lead pastor. And if, if the search committee was interviewing people and they found some, some young men from the seminary who had graduated and were looking for their first pastorate, and they're interviewing them, and in the conversation, they said, oh, tell us how you met your wife. I hear that you're a newlywed. And the, the young man says, well, yeah, I actually uh, I, I went to, to Deep Ellum uh, to 2 a.m., on an early Friday morning, and I was just cruising around until I found somebody that looked as though this is what they did for a living, and I thought she might be a good, good person to come with me into ministry. That might raise some red flags for the search committee. <laughs> I want us to see how strange this command is from God, but it is a command from God. So prophets sometimes would speak words, as Hosea is going to do in chapters 4 and following, and that would be their prophetic message. But sometimes God wants to bring the point home so clearly that he asks the prophets to live out an illustration. For example, one of the prophets wore a yoke around his neck like he was an oxen and walked around the city to make a point. Another prophet stripped down naked and gave his message as he was streaking through the city to make points. And that's what's happening here. The land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. The people of Israel were in sin. They were in this season of prosperity. And they were reducing their, their, their role as the people of God. They were making a mockery of it. So we have this picture of an unfaithful wife and a faithful husband which is an illustration being lived out by the prophet of an unfaithful Israel and a faithful God. And the message, the message is simple. Stop it. <laughs> turn. Turn away from these false idols so that you might be restored. That's the message of Hosea. Repent 
of this impure worship that you as my people have been participating in. Come back to me and you will be restored. So the question, and it is a fair question, did this really happen? Or is Hosea just writing about it as though it happened, as though it was an allegory? Well, there's, there's four different views as to what's going on here in verse 2, that verse that I just read. Uh, the first view is the whole thing is an allegory. It's just a spiritual allegory. It never really happened. That's one view. There's another view that Hosea married an idolater. So it wasn't really the type of promiscuity that we would associate. Again, I'm just guarding my language here on Family Sunday. It's not the type of promiscuity we would typically associate with this woman of the night. It's just somebody who had an idol, somebody who was engaged in false worship. Well, I, I reject both of those views out of hand because of the context of what we have in the text and the New Testament authors who refer back to this text and the way they refer to it. This really happened. So, Hosea married a woman of promiscuity. That's literal option one. Or, he married a woman who would become a woman of promiscuity. So, which is it? The answer is, I don't know, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a good thing for scholars to wrestle with, and I appreciate that. But the bottom line is, Gomer was unfaithful, blatantly unfaithful. Hosea was patient, forgiving, loving, kind, seeking restoration in all things. That's the point. The, the plain meaning of the text calls, us to have a, for, calls for us to have a rugged encounter with reality. Hosea married this unfaithful person at the express command of God in order to, prevent, to present in his own tormented life the most striking picture possible of what God was feeling when Israel was unfaithful to him. You follow? This is God's experience times 10. God's experience is the times 10. So one thing I just want to highlight just quickly, just as, a, as an interesting point, there are so many allusions to Genesis and Exodus in the book of Hosea. Why am I highlighting this point? Hosea's critique, God's critique of the people of Israel is founded on Scripture. It's founded on Torah. Interpretation of Hosea is impossible without us being grounded in those five books authored by Moses. So this prophet is anchored in the word of God. So what is the sin? What is the sin of Israel? Well, very simply, it's turning away. It's apostasy. Hosea 11.7, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he will not raise them up at all. Hosea 14.4, he, he promises, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. It makes me think of Proverbs 1.32, which says, For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. The, the, the picture that we have is this piano, you're welcome, Earl, represents the right worship of God. This is, represents the right worship of God. And the people are here, and they're turning away. 
They're, they're not over here. They haven't forsaken Yahweh and embraced Asherah or Baal. They're not over here. They're doing this. They're going, my hand is on the temple. I'm worshiping Yahweh. Everything's cool. Surely he would not mind if we worship him in the high places where the Asherah tree is. Surely he won't mind if we bring in the bull that represents Baal into the temple and make offerings to it just to be safe and just to be like the other nations so they don't think we're so strange. Surely that's okay. That's the sin. That's the apostasy. Instead of being focused on the object of their worship, they've turned away, pretending to be righteous when their worship has been watered down. So we now get to the punishment. We've seen the picture, this marriage to this unfaithful woman. Now we see the punishment, and the punishment is given to us in a heartbreaking way through the naming of these children. You notice the first child is Jezreel. And it's very clear. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So this is Hosea's son. Then the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. What does Jezreel mean? Why is this name so symbolic? Well, first of all, it means to sow or to scatter. So it can have a positive meaning, to sow seed for the harvest. It can have a negative meaning, to scatter away. So, so what's being gotten at here? What, what is the purpose of Jezreel? But it's also more than that. It's a valley. It, it is a location that would be very prominent in the minds of the people of Israel. It is this, this fertile valley that saw a lot of bloodshed. Uh, Jehu was commended for his zeal when he slaughtered the priests of Baal in 2 Kings 10. He obeyed the word of God and committed a great massacre. But now Jezreel is being used as a punishment. Why is that? Well, we have all of these different places, all of these different events that occur in Jezreel and Scripture, all of which are associated with, with death and bloodshed. Now, your many translations come across this way. Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu. Uh, that I will punish is not a great translation, and it's not respecting the, the context of the whole thing, because Jehu, again, was commended for his zeal. So rather, the translation that we read today, I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. So bloodshed will come. This is not punishment for Jehu's zeal at the slaughter of Jezreel. Rather, it is a punishment for not learning the lessons of Jezreel. So the son is named after a bloody, bloody battlefield. Then we have the daughter. So if any of you have a, a child or a grandchild on the way and you're looking for suggestions for names, how about Lo Ruhama? No mercy. No compassion. It also could mean not loved. Can you imagine naming your daughter not loved? A subtle thing. Verse 6, She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Loruhama. Notice it doesn't say, 
what it said in verse 3. She bore him a son. We no longer have the language of Hosea. So do we know for a fact that these are children of promiscuity? We don't know for a fact, but we know that Hosea's name is no longer associated with these next two children. And in chapter, in verse 2, it said, take for yourself children of promiscuity. So these may be those children. So here's Hosea naming a daughter that may or may not be his, not loved. Israel is a very child-centered nation. A, A name like this would be scandalous. So possibly the implication is it's not Hosea's daughter and he's making a point. But what we have here is the punishment from God. Because they are turning away from the right worship of God, they are becoming estranged from God. And God is saying, I once had compassion upon you, but now no compassion, no mercy. You shall not be loved by God. You are turning away, so you will not be loved Then another son is born. Also, it simply says, after she had weaned lo Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. It doesn't mention Hosea's name. It doesn't say bore him a son once again. Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. There's an escalation here. These are divinely designated, heavily judgmental names. We go from Jezreel, Jezreel talking about a future with no king at this battlefield. We go to Loruhama, a future without God's compassion, to Lo Ami, a future without God. It's a brutal escalation. These names are judgment. These names are descriptive of the punishment. This lo-ami, not my people, is a reversal of the covenant language of Exodus and Leviticus. God is rejecting Israel and abandoning her people. That's the judgment that's coming if you do not repent. Naming your children this. This is the equivalent of naming your three children Auschwitz and Homely and Terror. These are not good names. It's it's a heartbreaking thing. But why is our heart breaking? This is God being wounded by the people of Israel. Let's look at how they wounded him. For one, we see throughout the book of Hosea that they worshipped pagan gods. They turned away and brought Baal into the temple, brought Asherah in to be worshipped. Throughout this, there's also personal immorality. They are not living righteously. They are not behaving as the covenant people of God. They are not looking like the covenant people that he's called them to be. And they've also put their hope, not in God, but in their political involvements, their strength of military, their treaties with other nations. They are not trusting in God as their ruler. They're trusting in others, their hope is being misplaced. So we've seen the picture with Hosea and his marriage to Gomer. We've seen the punishment as embodied by his three children. Now we turn to the promise. In verse 10, we move from judgment to mercy. Verse 10 starts with, yet. Whenever you see that word, highlight it. It's one of my favorite words in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
yet. Name him, in verse 9, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet, the number of Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Do you hear the language of restoration here? So judgment is coming. And, and the judgment is coming, but now using the language that was used in the covenant to Abraham, there's going to be a time when the people of God who are dismissed by him as not his people will be shown mercy and become his people, gathered together, no longer scattered. Chapter 2, verse 23, I'm giving a foreshadow for, tomorrow, for next week's sermon. We could do it tomorrow if you want to come back. Next week's sermon. Uh, chapter 2, verse 23 we see this great undoing. I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lo Ruhama. I will say to Lo Ami, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. There is a promise. Verse 11 continues. And the Judeans, southern kingdom, and the Israelites, northern kingdom, God was not a fan of this divide. This was not his will for the people of his for his people. The Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. The promise of God sowing the richness of his people. So what do we do? How do we answer the question when? when we reflect on the scars on our arms from when God was holding on to us when we were turning away from Him, when we feel that pull, whether it be from sin or temptations of society or whatever it might be, pulling us away from the right worship of God, when God is not the primary thing in our life, when He is just one of the many things in my life, what do we do? Well, the message of Hosea to the people of Israel, the message of Hosea to his wife, Gomer, is the message of God to us today. Turn back. Turn back to the right worship of God. When I find that my hope is more in my 401k than it is in my God, Turn back. Turn back. When I find that my hope is more in political parties than it is my God, turn back. When I find that my hope is more in my identity as an employee or an athlete or a minister, turn back. See, that's the thing about priorities. There's a lie that we've been trained to believe that we can manage our priorities that we can have a priority list. The problem with that is a priority list can contain how many items? One. Only one thing can be a priority. If you are managing a priority list, you are juggling what's number one at any given moment. God, the right worship of God, is to be our number one priority. Nothing competes with Him. Examine your heart. I'm examining my heart. What competes with him? 
I'm not calling us a room full of idolaters, but I am calling us a room full of people that lose sight of the heart of our worship on a regular basis. And we need to be asking ourselves the question, what are my idols, my temptations, my addictions? Where do I find my security? Where does my mind go when it slips into neutral? Turn back to the right worship of Yahweh because He is holding on to you and He will not let you go. We may be faithless, but He will always be faithful. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I confess that our hearts are fickle and they are easily seduced and entranced by things that are not of you. Sometimes even good and admirable things become idols in our life because they supplant you as the number one focus of our worship. I pray that by your Spirit you would reveal to us those areas where our hearts are not attuned to you. We desire to repent of our false security, our false identities, our false idols. Show them to us so that we might die to them and live towards your Son. You are our God. We are your people. Show mercy on us. Guide us. Convict us. Grow us in the image of your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, by whose power we pray. Amen.